This is Startup Renegades, a raw conversation with founders, entrepreneurs, and the unicorns among us who have taken their idea and turned it into a thriving, profitable brand. I'm your host, Shauna Armitage, and my work as a fractional marketing director has led me to connect with dozens and dozens of founders in all stages of their startup journeys. Whether they're bootstrapping or fundraising or have capital on hand, there's one big question founders always ask, how do I grow this thing? On Startup Renegades, we'll explore how they did it, and you'll walk away with actionable steps you can take on your own journey to scalable growth. Hey, Renegades, welcome back. This week, I'm going to introduce you to Lindsay Campbell. She's the founder of two tech companies, Showclicks and Lanespotter. One was acquired, the other, not so much. Now, Every week, I bring a new founder to you with an inspirational story of how they started up and tactical tips for how they grew their companies. Lindsay is inspirational, but not for the reasons that you may think. Before tech, she worked in the entertainment industry doing stints at the Rosie O'Donnell Show and as a music publicist in Los Angeles. Her work has appeared in NPR, CNN, Forbes, Billboard, and the Wall Street Journal. Sounds awesome, right? Lindsay is the author of This Better Work, a female founder's wild journey through the hyper-masculine tech startup world. Most of the founder stories we hear are the successful ones, the ones with happy endings. Lindsay's was not that kind of story. In this book, she shares the true stories of her 15-year journey through that hyper-masculine tech startup world, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And she's sharing some of those stories with us today. She is, like I said, so inspirational, but not because of her stories of its success, but the stories of failure and what she's learned from it and what she's taken from it and how she's moved into that next stage. She's now a general partner of the Midwest Venture Capital Fund. I know that you are going to enjoy this episode just as much as I did. So let's dive right in. Hey there, Lindsay. Welcome to the show today. Hi, Shauna. Nice to meet you. I am so excited to hear about your experience. We were chatting for a minute here before we hit record, and I think that you have a really, really valuable story to share, and it's going to be a little bit different than the ones we typically hear on the show. So let's dive right in. How did you start off your professional career? So interestingly enough, I started my career in the entertainment industry, and it was one of those things where I joke, I call it chasing dreams. I wasn't totally sure what I wanted to do, but I knew I loved TV and radio and writing and music, and I wanted to work in that industry. So kind of chased those dreams, and that ultimately led me six or seven years later into tech. I started working as a media producer for the NBC affiliate here in Pittsburgh, learned how to update the website and just fell in love with the internet. And I decided I wanted to go work for a a web-based company, met my co-founder there. And my background, like I said, was in the music industry. He had an idea for an event search engine and kind of just took off from there. So what were the first steps you took to start that business? My co-founder and I, Josh, we bootstrapped it for about the first year or two. And when I look back, it's kind of comical, the steps that we took. This was maybe, you know, 2006. And I went, we joined a local business plan competition and proceeded to write a 32-page business plan for a tech startup, which is like unheard of today. Nobody does that. But for us, and at the time, it was something that we did that we thought could help get us to that next level. 
And I tell people, as, as funny as it is that we did that, at the end of that exercise, we ended up so much on the same page because we'd talked through everything. We knew how we wanted to grow the business. We knew where we wanted to put resources. We knew what we wanted our team to look like. And I really think it helped jumpstart our growth that we had taken that time in the beginning to really think through it together like that. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me about the iterations of this business. Yeah. So ShowClicks was the first company and that was an event ticketing company. It actually started out as a live event search engine. At the time, there was no place where you could go to find out what was happening in your city other than maybe like the local uh, alt-weekly newspaper. And we launched it with a really light event ticketing solution. And what we found was after we launched that the real demand and the real need was with the event ticketing. A lot of the people that we were helping promote their events needed a solution to get people in the door and they weren't big enough for Ticketmaster. So we recognized this need and just started throwing all of our resources into the event ticketing side. And, you know, we launched before Eventbrite, Ticketfly and some of you know the other companies that got really big. We happened to be there first. We were in Pittsburgh, though, and didn't have quite the resources they did. You said something really profound there, which strikes me, you know, at the time there wasn't this thing. And I think for most of us, when we hear about certain solutions, we almost can't imagine a certain time when that particular thing didn't exist, but it was really only like five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and that's nothing. And it really, really speaks to being innovative as a founder Mm. and understanding your space and finding a need because there always is a need. And now those things are so commonplace for us. Once upon a time, there was a founder that was saying, hey, I think, you know, somebody needs to fill this gap and I'm going to do it. And, you know, Maybe that could be you, listener. <laughs> Absolutely. And when, it's funny because when we launched ShowClicks, the idea was we were trying to lower service fees for ticket buyers. Like we were coming at this from a ticket buyer perspective. So funny enough, we didn't actually know the market very well. We launched as an all mobile ticketing company in 2007. The iPhone wasn't even out yet. Like it was, everyone was like, what are you doing? So we ended up again, having to hard pivot back into traditional ticketing, but we had this idea this like grand plan that we were going to make ticketing a digital thing. And again, it's hard to believe there was a time the iPhone didn't exist, but I had a Blackberry Pearl when we were doing this. (laughs) That is awesome. (laughs) I remember my first phone, which was a flip phone. And I I was so proud of it. (laughs) So what ended up happening with that business? And where was your next pivot personally? Yeah, so ShowClicks was... Such an amazing journey, hired an amazing group of people. I stuck around for about eight years, grew it to about six million in annual revenue. We had 50 people on the team. I unfortunately had a really, really bad relationship with the investors that we had decided to bring in over the course of this journey. And also during the course of the journey, my co founder left me in a way that was pretty spectacular and unexpected. And really kind of threw me into a spiral of really not knowing what was next for me. Because not only was I in a situation where I had investors that weren't supportive or really even nice to me, now my co-founder, who was my rock and had been there with me the whole time, was gone. So at that point, I just really needed to change. I was kind of in a bad place, honestly. I moved to San Francisco. I had started dating someone out there, moved to San Francisco. And the goal was I was going to go out and handle all of our kind of merger and acquisition conversations that we were having. 
you know, at this point, we had received one acquisition offer, and we're just kind of, you know, in the field playing that game. And then I got there and very quickly realized that the company wasn't set up to support me remote, and or they were ready for me to leave, and I just wasn't aware of it. And so I got there, and I found myself in a new place, kind of lonely, no friends. I started walking dogs. And over the course of a year, I turned walking dogs to make myself feel better into a full-blown dog walking business that I called Dogs Abide. And I kind of rediscovered myself in San Francisco doing something that was completely different than what I had dedicated you know, the previous eight years of my life to. And I had no idea how bad I needed that. And I think part of it was you know, the burnout of not really taking the time to take care of myself. And maybe it really just was, it was, you know, the world telling me that it was time to move on and do something different. Yeah, that's crazy. You dipped your toe in this startup world. So what was kind of the next step for you? Yeah, I mean, I and I, I'm born for early stage startup, I've learned at this point. So, you know, I go out to San Francisco. And during my time there, I end up having my son Dylan. He's six years old now. And when he was about three months old, I came back to Pittsburgh And it was at that point, I've been an avid cyclist my whole life. And when he was a year old, he was finally old enough where I could put him on a bike with me, started riding around. And at this point, I came back to Pittsburgh. I was doing contract work with a whole bunch of different startups and the Pittsburgh Parks Conservancy. I was just trying to figure out what was next for me. And I put him on my bike with me when he was about a year old. And all of a sudden, I realized I had no idea how to get from point A to point B in a safe way. You know, me by myself, a little bit of a risk taker, founder, I'll kind of cruise anywhere, put the kid on the bike. And I was like, oh, wow, this is complicated. Like, how do I get from here to there with him? And that's when I realized that a lot of cyclists feel that way. And I had my idea for my second tech company, which was called Lane Spotter. And I always kind of explain it as ways for bikes. So it was crowdsourced safety ratings where cyclists were rating the roads they travel to help other cyclists find the safest routes, not necessarily the fastest routes. I have stupid business ideas all the time. Some of them some of them stick and some of them don't. Most of them don't stick, obviously. But this was one of them where I was just, it, the itch struck and I couldn't get rid of it. And I went down a research rabbit hole and came out the other side realizing, again, wow, this is a thing that doesn't exist. How is that possible? And can I bring it to life? So talk to me from a startup perspective now. What were you doing to bring this to life? Especially with tech, there's so much involved. Did you go out and get a co-founder? Did you do you know, market research? Did you focus on getting your first customers? What were your first steps for the business? Yeah, for LaneSpotter, it's funny because a co-founder would have been fantastic. I ended up doing it as a solo founder, but I think I was in a place where I couldn't really trust anybody to join me on that journey at the point. But, you know, what I really did and what I'm a big believer in is just really, really being kind of customer forward, customer centric. And so I went down the route of just kind of reaching out to everybody I knew who was on a bike and trying to get a sense of like, how do you plan your routes? How do you get from point A to point B? What are your biggest pain points? What tools are you using now? So I really started with the customer first and understanding, number one, I had assumptions I wanted to prove, right? Like I wanted to prove that cyclists were interested in safety. I wanted to prove that they use their phones for navigation to get from point A to point B while they were riding. And, you know, I wanted to, to prove, you know, I had the assumptions I wanted to prove. So I went down the path of just like really talking to as many people as possible while in the meantime, kind of doing the market research and really outlining the features that I was considering. So I, you know, I always tell people, learn how to wireframe, 
learn how to write like functional and technical specs if you're interested. If you're a non-technical founder, because that is going to be your line of communication to project managers, product managers, and engineers. That's a way that you can speak to them that they're going to completely understand. So that's what I did. I went down, I wrote very detailed specs, and I wireframed. And at that point, my ex, who is my son's father, and we worked together actually at the time, he saw the kind of passion, the fire in my eyes. And he was at, a, at Ticketfly, and that company was sold to Pandora. And he reached out and he said, you know, I believe in what you're doing and I want to help you bring this to life. So we went and found a outsourced dev shop in Ukraine and I brought them on and I went through a couple months of daily standups at 8.30 a.m. walking them through like, this is what I want this to look like. And, you know, a handful of months later, I had an MVP. That's amazing. I want to take a step back just for anybody who may not understand some of the technical terms that you're using. Can you Mm -hmm. explain to listeners what a wireframe is and why they need it? Yeah. So a wireframe, when you think about, it's basically a visual depiction of what you want your product to look like. It's very low resolution, you know, no images, nothing fancy. There are some great tools out there, Sketch being one of them. Figma is a great place to do wireframing. But you basically want to just think step by step what you want your user to be experiencing when they're using your product. So if they click this button, what's the next screen they see? And with wireframing, you can do it in a way where it's basically just boxes that say like button, image, text. And when you pass that off to an engineer or somebody who's going to be building those things for you, much easier for them to understand. Okay. Thank you so much. I think that's really important. And somebody who may not be familiar with this or they may not have done a startup before may not understand you know, what that is. So that's so important. So tell me what happened with Lean Spotter at this point, because it sounds like you've got a pretty great support system behind you. My friends call me the vortex. And it's a joke. But like, once you're in my world, you're always in my world. It's kind of I barely spit people out. So over the course of the years, I've just really built a great group of people who have been supportive. And, and that was the case with Lane Spotter. So you know, I launched it, I launched it kind of with the focus of, okay, what users know the roads best in their cities? That was kind of how, again, I'm a big also believer in segmenting your audience or segmenting your market. You can always go more niche. And I think a lot of founders become afraid of doing that because they think it makes the opportunity too small. But in the beginning, when you have very few resources, this is a great way to get started. So I said, all right, let's focus on bike commuters because they know the roads well, but not just bike commuters. Let's focus on bike commuters who are also members of bike advocacy groups, because at that point they've paid money to be a member. They're legit, you know, committed and they care about bike safety. It's kind of like a vetting process. So I went and I kind of ranked cities based on where, you know, do you have a bike share program? Do you have a bike advocacy group? How many miles of bike lanes do you have in your city? I was looking for good starting points And I landed initially in three cities to test and then expanded out to 10. And I went to market kind of B to B to C through the bike advocacy groups. And it was through those partnerships that I met just kind of some of the most amazing people that allowed me to scale the app pretty fast. You know, we had 60,000 users and 160,000 safety ratings across all of these cities and countries. But I think a lot of that was also just... I had found something, I had kind of tapped into something with the community. This was something that they really wanted and needed. So the support was there. 
That sounds amazing. Tell me a little bit about why that was your go-to-market strategy of all the things that you could have done to really launch this thing right. Why was it those strategic partnerships that you focused on? Well, you know, number one, it was the most cost-effective way to do it for sure. So, you know, I could have gone the route of doing, and this is what I did with my first company. We grew ShowClicks solely through kind of like digital marketing, inbound marketing. Um, I didn't have the money. I didn't have the resources. I was a team of one. So for me, it made a lot sen- a lot of sense because it was cost effective. And I knew that if I could provide bike advocacy groups with everything they needed to launch it. So I always tell people this with partnerships, like, you have to do, if you're the one who's kind of initiating the partnership, like be expect to do most of the work, right? So like I wrote all of the emails that they would be sending out. I designed the social images that they would share, you know, for the launch. And what I also did was I got an understanding of who those bike advocacy groups were and what they needed. So rather than asking them to do something outside of kind of their daily work to help me launch my company, because, you know, why would they do that? I said, you know, what's really important to you right now and how can I support that? So if they were really focused on a program to give away bike lights, I'm like, okay, well, I'll be a sponsor of that program. And in exchange for that, you can help me launch Lane Spotter. So, you know, I was really going about this in a way that it was beneficial for my company, for the bike advocacy groups and for the community overall. And I think working in a space with nonprofits like bike advocacy groups, you know, they want to see that you're in it for the mission and not just the money. So I wanted to make sure I did that. That's amazing. I love it. But at the same time, it makes me think, where was the money coming from, you know, to sponsor these events and kind of put your best foot forward with these potential partners? How were you bankrolling it? Were you just bootstrapping? Did you have angel investment? So I was bootstrapping in the beginning. And then I'm in Pittsburgh. And I've been, again, a member of the tech ecosystem here for a really long time. There's an accelerator program here in Pittsburgh called Alpha Lab, and it's run by an organization called Innovation Works. They were my first investor in my first company. So when I was considering getting back into kind of that really early stage startup scene, I was like, well, this accelerator is right in my city. I know the people who run it. They've been really helpful to me in the past. I applied for that accelerator program and got in. So what that did was gave me give me 25K, which honestly is not a lot of money in tech. And most accelerator programs give people a lot more money than that. But it was just enough for me to cover engineering costs and cover the costs of the sponsorships to get this live. Wasn't paying myself, which was a huge mistake personally that I could talk about at some point. So that's kind of the route that I went with it. Hey there, it's Shauna. I wanted to take a quick break from this amazing episode to remind you that the Startup Renegades is not just a podcast. It's also a community. This community is dedicated to educating and connecting entrepreneurs on all things starting up. There, you'll find some great founder fireside chats, some free webinars, and even some three-day challenges to help you get your marketing and business goals right. You can find us on Facebook at Startup Growth Academy right now. So head on over. It's free to join and I can't wait to see you there. Okay, awesome. You're so right. 25000 sounds like a huge amount of money, but especially in the tech space, it does not go that far. No, so you were able to grow this thing to 60,000 users, you said? Yeah. So what's amazing is I got done with that accelerator and I was at this, I had no money left. You know, I'd spent the money through the accelerator program and I was at this pivotal moment again. And 
I was saying to myself, okay, what route do I want to go with this company? And I took a vacation by myself so I could kind of like think through it. And what I had landed on was I really don't want to go the venture capital route again. Like I don't want to invite investors into my life. I had a bad experience the first time. I joke, but it's not a joke. I have something called VCPTSD, I call it, where I just have a really hard time trusting and working with investors, even though I am one now. Um, you know, so I decided actually that I didn't want to go that route. And I was kind of considering, you know, is this a nonprofit? You know, what is this? And then I went to a networking event in Pittsburgh, ran into a friend, and he told me that somebody from Techstars was in town. And he was like, and I know you don't might not want to do another accelerator, but you should meet him. And I went and met him and I applied to the Techstars program, which is one of the most well-known accelerator programs in the world and ended up getting into the mobility program in Detroit. So I moved to Detroit for three months and that was $125,000. And when I got into that program, I decided to wrap some additional funding around it. So I found three or four angels and went into that program with closer to $200,000. And the goal was let's build out V2 launch this in an additional 15 cities and really kind of accelerate growth. That's amazing. And yes, that's a huge program. So you've got this extra capital and you really scaling up in a big way. But Lane Spotter didn't end up sticking around. So how did you get to 60,000 users and then end up deciding that the company wasn't a profitable one? This is what's amazing. Um, and this is why I am a big believer in, you know, it, these companies and these businesses, it's all about people, right? As I was getting into Techstars, knowing very well that I needed to run hard at a V2 during the program, that was my goal. I set out to find an engineer who could dedicate 40 hours a week to making that happen versus kind of these outsourced engineering um, development shops I'd been working with. And because I was in such a hurry and I was anxious and really wanted to find the right person, um, met a guy out of San Francisco. He had built a prototype bike app for Ford, understood all of the technology I was using, and I hired him for a four-month contract. Over the course of the first handful of weeks that I was in the Techstars program, I started to realize that something was wrong and he was slow and he wasn't responding Ultimately, it wasn't that I found out that Lane Spotter wasn't a viable business. It was that the guy I hired to build V2 didn't deliver a single line of code over the course of Techstars. Oh my gosh. When I refused to pay him the last $25,000 of his contract, he went into GitHub and deleted my code, all of it. So he deleted Lane Spotter. That is terrifying. Oh my gosh. And so I'm this is, just hearing about your experience. When I talk to founders, I tell them this all the time. And, you know, I wrote a book that's coming out and a big part of it really is that like, you know, startups are hard. People are harder. And I skipped a bunch of steps in that hiring process that I would have normally gone through. So for example, I have a very good friend um, who's a CTO and he vets a lot of the engineers that I hire because I don't necessarily have the skills to do that. And I skipped it this time. I This guy in San Francisco, you know, he sold me and I believed that I had found not only a person who could like deliver potentially V2, but I was like, you know, this might be a technical co-founder. Like he really gets it. And little did I know that I was sold 
vapor, basically. Were there any red flags for you other than, you know, you saw that he was moving slowly and you weren't making the kind of progress that you had expected? Was there anything else that stuck out to you throughout that experience? Yeah, you know, there were. So even before Techstars, he started about a handful of weeks before Techstars. And I got a list from them and they said, you know, here are the things we need before you show up for the program. And one of them was a, a land, a great landing page. So, you know, to drive, you know, leads. And I hadn't redone a landing page. So he's like, oh, I'm actually a designer too. Let me do the landing page. I was like, oh, cool. Take that off my plate. Now I can build a landing page in a day. It's not that hard anymore. You know, back in the day, it was hard. It was like two days, three days, four days. And it was just taking, I just had this gut feeling. I'm like, why is this taking him so long? And then I just let it go. I was like, you know what? He was trying to get this right. He went the extra mile. He added some animations, et cetera, et cetera. And then over the course of the program, what I was noticing was just a lot of excuses, right? So he'd show up to give me a demo of what he'd built and it wasn't working. Or he would text me in the morning and say, I was up all night working. You know, I'm going to bed now. Can we catch up later? And then we'd never catch up later. I mean, there were tons of red flags. The problem was I was wearing blinders (laughs) and I was so focused on getting to demo day that I was ignoring these like major warning signs. And I don't even know if I was ignoring them, but I just didn't know how to deal with them. So I did nothing. I basically just powered forward and I kept thinking to myself, all right, if I like yell at this guy enough, or if I follow up enough, he'll make it happen. And I should have recognized earlier that he was never going to work in any capacity. And what I should have done, you know, in retrospect was fire him as soon as I had that bad feeling. And this is something that I tell tech founders too. If you get into an accelerator program, don't make decisions for the accelerator program, make decisions for your business. And I was making decisions for the accelerator program. I, in my mind, if I got rid of him, there was no chance I was going to ever be able to produce the goals that I had set for myself for demo day. Well, guess what? It didn't matter because the company doesn't exist anymore. Like I should have really trusted my gut and I ignored it. I think because I was in this environment of high growth, you must be successful. You need to meet these goals for this specific day. And uh, it wasn't good. (laughs) Wow. It's so amazing hearing your story. And I just have to thank you, commend you for just being so honest and straightforward about that experience. Because I think this is one that you probably don't hear very often that founders really, really need to hear. So what ended up happening with LaneSpotter? You know, you had all this investment. That was just it? Yeah. So (laughs) I joke, I say in my book, I did what seven-year-old Lindsay would do. And I basically picked Lane Spotter up over my head, smashed it on the ground and walked away. I didn't shut it down properly. I didn't, I couldn't, I was so devastated and so broken. I still am not sure I'm over it. Honestly, I just couldn't believe what happened. So I come back to Pittsburgh And I didn't have any money left to even, you know, try to take everyone's like, why didn't you sue him? Why didn't you take him to court? I'm like, number one, I had no money left. And I had no emotional capacity to do that. So I took a step back. I decided to take a break. I went skiing in New Mexico and immediately tore my ACL because that's how life works. (laughs) But over the course of that, I reached out to all of my founder friends in the city and I just laid it out. And like you were saying, I'm super honest about this stuff because failure in this environment is absolutely positively unavoidable. So it's kind of what you do with those experiences, right? So I've always tried to be as honest and transparent. I reached out to all my founder friends and I said, Hey, this thing happened. I'm really pretty devastated. 
I think the best thing for me right now would be to join another early stage team in a, you know, where I can like add a lot of value based on my experiences. And I went and joined another tech company in Pittsburgh, worked with them for about a year, and then decided to do do contract work. But over the course of doing that contract work, I met a couple of people who were also pretty passionate about bikes and really wanted to try to resurrect Lane Spotter. And I went through the process. Long story short, ended up, you know, figuring out that while I had lost all of the code and the database was gone all of the users were actually still in the platform as well as the safety ratings that had not actually been deleted completely. So it was like enough to spark this, like, Ooh, could I do this? Like, could we really make this happen? And I went down the path of getting it already, you know, (laughs) and then it was time to raise money and I realized I couldn't do it. And I think it was partially the PTSD from the first experience I'm just at a different stage in my life at this point. And I decided that what was best for me and my son, you know, my family, my friends was to not be a founder anymore. And I've now pivoted really into helping other founders. I feel like in some ways I've actually found my calling more so than than I thought I had, you know, being a founder was really just helping other people find the path forward and kind of make their dreams of success. And that's what I've now been doing. And I absolutely love it. I have no regrets. Like I'm sad over Lane Spotter in a lot of ways, because I do believe it was a, a great idea and had a lot of potential. But I also think that maybe it wasn't meant to be, you know, maybe there was a reason that happened. And I try to stay optimistic and I try to be as positive as possible. And, you know, I'm excited for what's ahead for me. Me too. (laughs) What are your big kind of tips or your big takeaways that you feel like other startup founders need to hear right now? Yeah. So again, I think this is really about people and don't forget that. I meet a lot of founders who are building a business for investors, for example, right? And they're looking at these numbers and it's all about meeting these goals and having a number of users or weekly visitors to your website. And the people behind those, there are people behind those numbers and that's what's more important, right? And that's where you're going to find your success is in those people, not only your customers and your clients, but in your team and your investors. And the most important thing is to surround yourself with the right people. I always tell, I've told founders too, like the beauty of being a founder is you get to pick who sits at the table with you. Like that is one of the biggest luxuries in life. Make sure you do that right. Pick the people who are going to challenge you, who are going to push you, who are going to ask questions and who round out your skill set and be very thoughtful and strategic about that. Because that's what's going to allow you to go on a vacation. That's what's going to allow you to not be constantly stressed out. You know you have the right people. So focus on that and and success will follow. I really believe it. I love it. It's such important takeaways for sure. I'm just like mentally going over how to do this in my own business, right? So now you've pivoted. Tell us what's next for you. Yeah. So again, life is so interesting. In late last year, you know, Techstars changed my life. I tell people this all the time. And while it didn't do for my business what I thought it was going to do because there was no business at the end of it, I met the most amazing group of people and it grew my network exponentially. Another tip for founders, get out of your hometown. And I'm not saying like move, but like expand your network, get to know people in other places because not everybody's going to use your business, your product, whatever it is, the way that like your local people do. So One of my really good friends from Techstars, a guy named Ked Serbinski, he was my managing director in Detroit, reached out to me and said, 
I want to start a really early stage, you know, kind of pre-seed venture fund in the Midwest. I'm looking to do it with Jenny Fielding and Scott Hartley out of New York. They have a fund. It's called The Fund. He said, we would be The Fund Midwest. Would you like to do it with me? And I never thought I would be sitting on the other side of the table, but I said yes. And there's four of us. We're four general partners. Um, I'm in Pittsburgh. Ted is in Detroit. A guy named Chris Bergman in Cincinnati. Jennifer Freed in Chicago. And we're now making investments in really early stage companies with a focus on women and minority founders. So I'm actually able now to write checks to people, you know, to help them make those dreams come true. And um, again, like I said, I don't want to necessarily work in a tech company anymore, but I recently accepted a job. I start next week. The title is Startup Czar, <laughs> and it's with the Pittsburgh Regional Alliance, which is an economic development organization in the city. But I'm going to be the point person for startups in the city to help them, you know, find the resources they need, get the help they need and develop programs that can help. Um, not only keep awesome founders and startups in Pittsburgh, but attract others to the city because of everything that we have to offer. So I'm super excited. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's all coming together um, at the same time, but it's been a roller coaster and I'm, I'm happy to be on one of the highs. <laughs> yes, I love it so much. And I love being able to introduce listeners to new funds, you know, that they can go to. And, you know, I love the kinds of businesses that you're investing in too. And you have a book coming out. I believe it's going to be out when this episode goes live, actually. Yeah, I do. It's called This Better Work, A Female Founder's Wild Journey Through the Hypermasculine Tech Startup World. And, you know, it's really kind of a, an honest, raw look at what it's like to be a female founder in tech, kind of not in Silicon Valley, not in New York, everywhere else, which is the majority of us. And every chapter revolves around a pivotal moment in the founder's journey. So, you know, raising that first money, hiring the first team members, building those initial partnerships. And it's kind of real world advice wrapped in kind of the stories of my career. So I kind of joke, it's like part memoir, part like kind of knowledge share. And I think I'm very funny. So there's a couple good jokes in there. That's all that matters, my friend. That is what keeps us going. Every, I tell people this all the time. As long as I'm making myself laugh, I'm happy. <laughs> so where can everybody find you? So I have a website. It's lindsaycampbell.com. But because I was born in 1977, and I don't know what my mom was doing, she got very creative with it. My first name is spelled L-Y-N-S-I-E. <laughs> so it's awesome. lindsaycampbell.com. And then I have a, uh, I send out a weekly newsletter called Chirps. It's kind of startup advice, tons of marketing stuff, no code tech adventures. And that's housed at chirps.blog, all connected on the web. But okay. those are the two places where I live most. Well, we'll go check it out. And I have to ask you the big question, Lindsay, what does being a startup renegade mean to you? It's about making dreams come true is kind of the way I look at it. It's really you know, building something from scratch, taking your experiences and making that thing that you want to exist, live in the world and making the world a better place. Like one of the things I like about the title of my book, you know, this better work. It's about every founder says that a million times. Right. But at the end of this journey, what I've found is that I just want to do better work. And ultimately, I think that's what being a startup renegade is about is like finding that passion and doing kind of the better work that you were meant to do. Yes, I love it. Cheers to doing better work. Thank Cheers you for being that. here, Lindsay. <laughs> Thank you, Shauna. It was great. That was this week's episode of Startup Renegades. Thank you so much for joining me and soaking up all that brilliant entrepreneurial knowledge from today's guest. If you want to suggest a founder for a future episode or just want to connect, you can find me on Instagram at shauna.armitage. 
That's S-H-A-U-N-A dot A-R-M-I-T-A-G-E. And just a little reminder, if you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. It makes a huge difference and it's so important for helping the show thrive. I'll be here same time next Tuesday for a raw, honest conversation with another startup renegade.